I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Garingai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Finua of Tifanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. So this week... Uh, we're reading the chapters seven to eight through the theme of chance, mm-hmm. which was interesting. Um, do you have a little story for us about chance? I do. And I just want to say it's a bit sad, but it's also not sad at all. So <laughs> I wrote it and I was like, well, this is a real downer. So uh, here we go. Uh, when I was 10, I was in dance class. And at the end of every year, we have a dance recital, which is the best part because you get to wear a fun costume and you're going to do stage makeup. And like, it's just really exciting. And the song we were dancing to that year was like Madonna, like an older Madonna song. And I still love that song a lot. So it was just really great. Amazing. But the week before my dance recital, I was playing outside with my neighbors and I was barefoot because it was May, which means it was almost summer. And I stepped on a rusty nail. Oh. Uh, so immediately I was convinced I was like dying of rusty nail disease. So I oh. hopped inside screaming and my mom, who does not do well with kids being injured, like heroically pulled herself together, got the nail out of my foot, got me to urgent care. She's amazing. Hero of the year. Um, my little puncture was cleaned out and looked at and the doctor said I needed to get a tetanus shot. Um, the key thing you should know about a tetanus shot, if you haven't had one in a while, is that it really hurts. It stings going in and you ache for like days afterward. Um, You can get it in the arm, but there is no justice for little people, of course. So I had to suffer the indignity of getting it in my backside. Oh, no. On the left. So I had a brutally sore left leg, a tender right insole, and I was, like, petrified I would miss the concert. Everyone reassured me I would be fine, and I was. Concert night arrived. I danced. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't remember much of the dance itself, but the lights were super hot, and I know that I remembered all my steps. I only had one dance, so after we were done, one of the dance moms dismissed me to go back out and find my family. So I went into the audience and found my mom and dad, and my mom said, hey, guess who I ran into? And she turned around, and behind her was sitting the nurse who had given me the tetanus shot the week before. Aww. Uh, it was pretty funny. Like, I I recognized it then, and I recognize it now that it was actually pretty funny. But as a 10-year-old, I was also, like, super awkward about it, because, like, this lady has seen my butt. <laughs> so I was like, hi, I think I did pretty good, you know, for having stepped on a nail. And the nurse was like, oh, yeah, I think you missed a few steps. Um, rude. All I could think was, oh, so I didn't do dance the next year. Um, it wasn't really the rusty nail or the tennis shot that made me miss a few steps. I don't know if I would have kept dancing, but I do know that the nurse's words have stuck with me. It was like chance that she was the nurse on duty that night, and it was chance that she was at the same performance that my parents were at watching a niece or a nephew or something. And it was just a unlucky chance, I guess, that her comment really stayed with me for two and a half decades. I mean, I would have figured out that I'm not a great dancer at some point, surely. Um, instead, though, that knowledge was delivered to me by an adult, and it was really sharp and stinging. And maybe she meant it to inoculate me against teasing, but it still hurt going in, and it hurt for a long time afterward. Oh, no, that's not very nice at all. Why would you say such a thing to a kid? I don't know. And I, like, I don't know. 
like I said, it ended up being a really sad story, didn't it? I hope she's listening and she realizes. Oh, I mean, it's fine. Like, I honestly kind of suspected I wasn't a good dancer, but I didn't know. And that was when I was like, oh, no, I'm never going to be. Like, I wasn't a natural dancer. And I'm probably Mm -hmm. still not a natural dancer. The counterpoint story to that is when I was in... 19 or 20, I took a ballroom dance class for like a phys ed requirement for the community college I went to. And the teacher was like, it took me seven years to learn how to do this. I'm not a good dancer, but I stuck with it. And he was a fantastic dancer and he was so lovely. And he danced with me once and it was like one of the like three best dances I've ever had in my life because he was just so good. So there are definitely people out there who are not natural dancers who can stick with it. So yeah, if you want to, I guess is the thing, right? If you want, if you can be bothered persevering and you really want to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that maybe even though I had that kind of ratty nurse, I also had that really nice ballroom dance teacher who was like, you don't have to be good. You just have to keep going and you will get good. Hmm. So yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, Sorry I was such a Debbie Downer. Oh, no, not at all. I was just thinking there's this dance class in Wellington. It's called Shut Up and Dance. And the whole thing is that it's made for people who aren't good at dancing. So Mm. there's no mirrors in the room or anything like that. You just go in. You learn a a routine from a popular song. So you'll like learn a Justin Timberlake routine or something like that that they've made up. And it's 45 minutes and you just learn it and then you leave. And the next time you come, it's a completely different song. So you don't have to remember it or whatever. And it's just this idea of like just bringing the joy of dance without any of the stress that comes with dance classes oh wow all right so tell me your moment of wonder this week i want to know what you've been up to so i guess my moment of wonder this week is that i got a tattoo and it's something that i've wanted to do for a very long time and i was really very nervous about it because when you overanalyze it, it's quite a messed up thing to do. <laughs> I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? Why do we do this? Why is this a thing that people do? I don't understand. But um, I kind of went in to see my artist. And the thing is, I booked it in last year and I had to postpone one. So it's been a very long time coming. It's probably been a year in the making, just waiting for this appointment. And part of me still thought, oh my God, I might not actually just not do it. And I might just walk out. But as soon as I saw the design that he did, I just felt it felt so right. And it's like he completely got what I wanted and he really captured what I needed. And just like it was amazing. And then when he was doing it, he was just so good. And I just was so amazed. And I, like it's such a stupid thing because obviously he's good. It's his job. Yeah. But it's just like the way he was doing the shading and how he could do the different colors. And like he could make it really like look really faded in bits. And I was just like, how are you doing this? This is actual witchcraft. Like with ink and a needle. Like it's actually just crazy to me and with human skin as the canvas like it's not a perfectly primed gessoed surface yeah it's not like a perfect environment either you know like mm. and so I just I just thought that was really amazing and I just really appreciated the whole process and I thought that he was like really admired his craft I guess and Mm. that was my moment of wonder because I'm not an artist and so I have immense respect for people who are it is a really beautiful tattoo Thank you. I like it. And it's my favorite moment of the Harry Potter books as well, so. It's a great moment. It means a lot to me, so. Yeah. Um, okay, what about you? Moment of wonder. Uh, yes, so uh, it's mine's pretty little. Uh, my niece turned three, and she was very excited. Auntie Jen, I'm three! Yes, you are, baby. <laughs> Cute. You are so, Cute. so wonderful. Um, but my sister-in-law was amazing and sent invitations in the real mail 
to my kids addressed to them and they each got one and so they got to go to the letterbox and get their mail and they got to open their own post and they were so excited and I actually sent her a text saying thank you like made their week and she's like oh I just remember how exciting getting post was when I was a kid and it really is the most exciting thing I agree it's still the most exciting thing when it's not you know bills but yeah I thought that was really wonderful like it is when you are, take the time to make other little kids feel special, they really notice it. It really matters to them. So hmm. I was mo- I was wonder adjacent for my kids. That's yeah. so lovely. So wholesome. Love a bit of wholesome chat. Yes. Um, okay, so I'll do some chapter summary, shall I? Oh, thank you. <clears throat> so in chapter seven, the party arrives at Earl's Court. It's a medieval court that exists on an underground train and defies all spatial logic. Um, the Marquis is forced to leave. The Earl gives Dora a scroll that will help them find the Angel Islington. In Chapter 8, the Marquis gets information from Old Bailey. Richard learns about old forgotten underground stations. Hunter reveals that she can't leave London below, and Richard and Dora make their way into the British Museum. But of course, Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandermar ambush them, only to tell Dora that there's a traitor in her party, and then they let them go. Dun, dun, dun. How can you even know about the city of London without knowing about the forgotten underground stations? Seriously, Richard. I know, it's a bit <laughs> silly, isn't it? He does seem quite, like, wrapped up in his own stuff, though, right? Mm. Like, he doesn't see, strike me as the type to go looking for the extraordinary. So maybe, you know, he's like, if it's not on the tube map, then it's not relevant to me. Because he did connect with Jessica, what, halfway through his tenure there? Yeah. The fact that he's really been focused on following her for so long maybe he hasn't found things of his own to be interested in yeah except the trolls right and even that's kind of like fell upon him Mm. yeah i don't know he does seem like a very internal person he doesn't seem to choose things very often like for himself yeah things happen to him rather than he chooses them but i mean that's that's kind of why he's such a good entry into this world right because everything's happening to him and we're then focused on following him in this journey yeah poor man just can't get any ans- straight answers from anyone though can he no and um i've spoken about my friend bethany before but she just read this book but she kept texting me and saying like why aren't they just telling him what he needs to know how come nobody gives any answers just like <laughs> i know i know the only one who really does good at and i think this is a, a moment of compassion in the book is hunter like mm. she actually makes the effort to talk to him explain things that are happening i agree i I couldn't really think of too many moments of compassion. Not a lot showed up for me. Mm, But mm. I did think that, you're right, that Hunter, just even giving Richard some instructions, that's really helpful and useful for him. Yeah, like, she doesn't explain what the underside line or whatever it is, but, you know, she she says to him, you know how I told you about the shepherds from Shepherd's Bush and Mm. you don't want to know about them. This is another thing you don't want to know about. So at least she gives him some sort of context. So that he can go, right, okay, I can just file that under no thank you. Um, Okay, so our theme was chance. It was weird for me because I was kind of like thinking of chance more in the way that something just happens, mm. you know, without like without intent, something just like, oh, that's a, a chance thing. But then I also thought, you know, chance can also be the possibility of something. happening. Yeah, opportunity. Like you take a ch- yeah, you take a chance on something. And that sort of like focused my thinking a little bit. Yeah, I, I tried to look at it through like randomness, but everything feels too much like dominus falling do you know what i mean yeah yeah like calculated or following a path yeah so i had to look more for like people taking opportunities to pursue their agendas or Mm. people taking a chance to do something because they had the opportunity at that moment rather than like oh this just happened by chance 
Which I think is, you know, the, what kind of the Marquis is good at, right? He's always pursuing those opportunities when they present themselves. He's very good at exploiting chances. And asking for favours. It's wild how many favours he has. I, I wanted to get your opinion on this. Do you think that the Marquis gave Lear that tune by chance? Do you think that he did that on purpose? Or do you think that, like, it was just an accident that he gave him something that would end up being powerful and not in a good way? No, I think he was definitely stacking the deck if you will he's Mm -hmm. like oh I'm gonna give him this tune and maybe he won't abuse it but knowing what I know about human nature or whatever he will abuse it but I think he took a pretty big chance thinking that he would make it back in time to save it or did he just not care if he didn't yeah I don't know because it seemed like he needed to save him in order to get another favor right away yeah which I thought was really interesting but he didn't get off at the same platform so he was coming back that way on purpose yeah, and it's a big chance because, you know, he had, like, so many things had to happen for him to make that move. Like, mm-hmm. the Earl had to kick him off the train. All these things had to occur for him to, yeah, to get back there. So, I don't know. It seemed like a pretty bold move, but it does align with his schutzpah, I guess. <laughs> I, I like the way that Dora put it. She said, yes, he's a little bit dodgy in the same way that a rat is a little bit covered in fur. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting that Richard thought that he was, like, revealing something to her and she's like yeah i am aware thank you (laughs) yeah the original mansplainer i did think it was interesting when you know the marquis goes to see old bailey to get information and old bailey's like well you can trade me a favor since that's what you always do and he was like no just there's a line where he's like it's too costly in the long run or something like that yeah and i'm like so you are a, you are fully cognizant of what you are doing to people. You know that you are taking far more than you should, and yet you continue to do it. Well, I read that as it was too expensive for the marquee. I felt like he was gaining all of these things, but it's sort of like he's got all these plates spinning and knowing mm. when to let one down so that you can then get to another one. Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah. explaining it really badly, but I think he's juggling so much literally all of the time with all of the favors and all the information he needs and each project or whatever that comes up, each little campaign he runs, he has to kind of figure out how to balance it. Yeah, he's kind of like a puppet master in a way. He's got so many mm. so many strings happening, you know, that he's trying to pull. Yeah. He's an interesting one. There were a couple of funny moments that I really liked. One thing I loved was when the hunter wanted a joke from the jester. He's too scared. <laughs> the jester was like, I don't want to say anything. So he says, my hound hath no nose. <laughs> yeah, the court was kind of sad to me in a way. Like the fact that, you know, the jester seemed so tired and everyone was just like, you know, Richard describes the the guy as being like a, re- a retired civil servant who was made to do this against his will. And I'm like, oh man, everyone is just so over this. How long have they been doing this? It feels like, um, I'm thinking of Lord of the Rings and like the crazy king whose name I can't remember. Denethor. Sean Bean's dad? Yeah. Thank you for forgiving me my absolute lack of knowledge. Um, But like how everything sort of turns awful and bad when like ruler isn't able to rule effectively and efficiently and like hanging on to something that's not really real anymore. Yeah, because like the Earl obviously seems like he's been around for years. Like Richard says, you know, 600, 800 years or however long. But, you know, the tube hasn't existed for that long. So where was Earl's Court before it was on the tube trains? Yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions. 
I really want more world building. <laughs> I feel like we get thrown into this, but not like I want more. I want to know more about it. That's just me, though. You know how I am. Yeah, you love the backstory. I want the details. I want the mythos, the legend. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm I'm just a bit hungry for more because I want a little bit more to fill the story. And I have questions and I want some answers. Not all the answers. You don't have to be super prescriptive, but just a bit more. I think that's why I love American Gods so much as well, because it's built on real myths. So you've got that really mm. rich history that you can go back and delve into. So Yeah, you can see what was cherry picked and how it was used and how it was transformed. Yeah, that's interesting. This, we don't know a lot. Like you, there's this bit where, you know, Richard talks about the Earl and how he's kind of like a wreck of a man and he can't remember and I, I just thought maybe he's never been able to remember because Hunter says you know he's the king of like this is his realm the realm of lost things the realm of forgotten things so yeah. it's actually quite within his like remit to not be able to remember from one moment to the next that, that just might just be how he is like Richard connects it with the fact that he's older but he might have always been like that yeah I thought it was interesting I wanted to know what you thought about this because I thought oh maybe he's being compassionate because the way he talks about it he's like he can see what he could see that wreckage inside of this man like he talks about it like this person is a ruin um which one feels really ableist to me in a way that I can't really articulate um and, and at first I was like oh okay so Richard's feeling pity but then I was like but is this actually compassion or is this just like what it didn't hit me very much like compassion it didn't feel like compassion i read it as pity i thought he was like oh you know it's quite sad that this this kind of like sadness for yeah. what could have been and the history of lost things you know that sort of thing and that yeah he could have seen that when he was in his prime and his full potential and isn't it sad that what he has become that's not particularly nice the way that the earl is described no and is it accurate like maybe he sprang to life fully formed as this iteration well that's what i thought i just thought he would have always been like this because this is a, a world that is you know we don't know how people age do they age at all like it's a you know a time it's a world outside of time and place almost mm. the earl's court exists in this weird spatial anomaly so the longer you survive the longer you live basically that's kind of how i've looked at it because everyone seems to talk about Richard falling through the cracks. He might make it overnight. I mean, they really talk about him like he's not going to survive for very long. But there are enough people in London below that they have survived for so long. Mm. So maybe it's not that it's all of the marginalized people, but just the ones who do slip through the cracks and then are able to survive and are canny enough to sort of get themselves through the first however many obstacles. Mm. And once they've tapped into it, they're just part of it. Because presumably Old Bailey has always been old because he's called Old Bailey. Yeah. So. I like that he was very much enjoying the Marquis' discomfort and not knowing something. Mm. I like that too. He is too smug. And I do think Old Bailey was taking a bit of a chance there, giving the Marquis the info before getting paid. Like, he's not going to come yeah. back with your shoes, mate. What are you doing? The other thing I thought, which is only slightly related, was um, are these people who had other lives, like Richard did, but then they came mm. to London below and then there was just some sort of role for them to fill? So they became them? Like, could the Earl actually be just a random guy from, like, 1920s London? Could his men-at-arms be retired civil servants who lost their housing and then literally became men-at-arms for the earl's court yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought of that like maybe the job remains and exists and then the next person who's suitable for it that survives long enough gets it 
like the Dread Pirate Roberts. Yes. Maybe that is yes. the Earl. One of the best, one of, yes, one of the best explanations in history. But on the Dread Pirate Roberts angle, people like Dawe are born into London Below. Like she's mm. born into a dynasty, right? She was born into it. She didn't come from the outside. I felt like she took a bit of a chance just trusting that the Earl will be able, one, be able to help and two, be willing to help because the political machinations of this world is very fraught. And she just turns up and she's like, I'm Lord Portico's daughter. And who knows how that could have gone? Like, it's quite a big leap there. She does seem to have a lot of social capital. Mm. And like, we experience Richard's astonishment at that. But she's also, I mean, she is continually described as like a teenager. But I don't know that she is. No, and there was that line about her eyes being, you know, more ancient than they have any right to be. So maybe you just get to a certain point and you start slowing down. Like Anesthesia, who would have been a girl for years and years and years, I think. Can we talk about um, Richard and Miss Whiskers? Oh, I know. That was a moment of compassion and chance, I think. Yeah. He was trying so badly to say, like, I didn't want it to happen because he really didn't want it to happen. But I just don't think the rats care about the rat speakers very much. No. And they'd also said, like, she said, oh, she might come back, which I thought was interesting. I think that was definitely a moment of compassion from Richard. You need to tell the next akin, you know, he wanted someone to know. Well, and maybe Miss Whiskers was being compassionate back to Richard and saying, she might come back. That was compassion, I guess, from her also being like, oh, we don't blame you for that, even if it is a bit dismissive of the worth of anesthesia's life. Yeah. But, you know. I don't think that was his point. He wasn't saying, like, I lost your, your rat speaker. I think he was saying, this girl has gone missing. Mm. And she was like, oh, we don't blame you for losing our rat speaker. Like, but it's... I felt like there was some miscommunication yeah. there. No, I did feel it as well. They were like, oh, it's fine. Don't, we've got loads of them. Don't worry about it. It's like, oh my God. It's the fantasy world churning through people without considering them people. That really gets me every time. I'm like, ah, that was a person. That was a soul. Yeah, Game of Thrones, not for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm too old and soft now, I think. I wondered if all of the things in the library... Has the Earl collected those things by chance? I just wondered if everything that's ever lost on the underground just ends up in this room. Yeah, like slips away like that pen planet in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hmm, yeah. I did like, I really enjoyed the thought of that room. I just thought it was really interesting. Like the Earl must know a lot of, must have a lot of knowledge that has been forgotten because he, he gets all this forgotten stuff comes to him. And then it's just like, it's really interesting to me. London Below is forgotten. And then the Earl deals in the Forgotten. So it's this Forgotten Realm within the Forgotten Realm. It's just like, oh, we've got layers going on here. Yeah. And what is it that Old Bailey says? If I don't know it, it's better off forgot. Mm. So that's an interesting, like that the Marquis sees Old Bailey who encounters Richard later and directs him to Dor, but then Dor immediately goes to the Earl. And he's the person whose realm is the forgotten. Because they're looking for impossible information, right? They're looking for information about an angel, which... You know, it might be so old that the only people who would have known it will have forgotten it sort of thing. Yeah. I Yeah, I'm wondering how old the Earl is. I really want to know how long he's been trundling around in London Below. And what London Below looked like before it was below. Mm. Because Old Bailey talked about it, like, that it was all mixed together before. Yeah. Like, there's definitely, I think there's something in that, like, cities kind of lose their souls as they become more... Because I think he's completely right. And, you know, like, back in ye olde days when London was first established, you know, it was kind of like the city or this town on the river and then it was really bustling and all these things. And then as 
industry pushes people into the suburbs. Like, that's what happens, right? Like, businesses move in and then people can't live there anymore and the city gets cleaned up. And then, yeah, it's, yeah, whatever that means. It's no longer fit for, for the average person. People get priced out. Yeah, oh, exactly. Gentrification and then housing should be affordable and widely available and it is a human right. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Just thinking about this idea of like people gentrification and people being pushed out of the cities. In a way, London below is kind of like society has been like they've been pushed out of society, right? Like it's like this gentrification of society being like, you guys are too weird. Go. We don't want to see you anymore. You're too damaged. You're too problematic. And then they just get pushed out. Yeah. I do wonder at their own. They're very they're very much the weird kids who won't let anyone else sit at their table, though, aren't mm. they? Like, they're almost hostile. Drama kids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to say it, but... <laughs> yeah, they're, they're almost hostile, right? To anybody who's coming in who's new. The idea that you would not be able to survive, even though you have been marginalized and your entire life has been erased. Like, wouldn't they be like, okay, what have you got? How can you help? Like, what are your skills? What can you do? I wonder if that's a scarcity thing. Like, there's not enough room, there's not enough food, there's not enough place. Like, everyone's basically, because they have these fealties and fiefdoms and things, everyone's kind of an enemy if they don't have a place, you know? It's not great. (laughs) No, it just, yeah, it seems like a very, um, like, the rules of the society are very different, and... You don't necessarily get ahead by learning them. I think I'm thinking back to what that woman said, the woman who met Richard in the very beginning of the book in the prologue, who said, you have a kind heart, but I don't know that it will take you very far. Mm. I don't know if it'll be enough because he does have a kind heart. He is trying. I, I don't think he's genuinely wishing anyone ill. He sometimes bumbles by desiring to smooth things over. Mm. I feel like he wasn't very compassionate to Hunter when she was really struggling with saying, I can't go to London above. He was like, no, don't be silly. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> the narration style removes him from that. So he says, or Richard found himself. Like that that's a mm. phrase that popped up a lot. I, not that I want you to be as obsessed with finding it now, but like once I noticed it, mm. I'm like, well, he says this like every other paragraph. It's like, Richard found himself this. Richard found himself that. Which like, is just, yeah, it's just kind of whole Richard's whole letting life happen to him thing, right? Mm. Like he's like, oh, I'm never in charge of my own actions. I am never like, these things just happen. Like I don't, I don't act, I don't have any agency. I don't choose these things. I'm like, Following mate. Jessica around at these really terrible contemporary art exhibits. And, and there's, a, like, there's a moment where Dor gets annoyed at him and she snaps at him and he's like, I was just asking. Yeah. I'm like, mate, what you're being is annoying. Like, oh yeah, because he's like, oh, can't you open it? And she's like, what does it look like I'm trying to do? You know, she's like, I'm trying. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than when you're trying to do something and someone stands over you and gives you advice about the thing that you're doing. I'm like, yeah, how is this helping? And that's what I just felt of Richard in that moment. I'm like, you are contributing nothing. It's just being annoying. He does learn from it, though, right? Like, Yeah. Because later when she's touchy with him about something else, he says, oh, I was only wondering, like, not calling you out, not trying to make you feel bad. Like, I'm just curious and want to know what's going on. Because nobody tells him anything. Like, <laughs> let's be fair. No yeah. one tells Richard anything. I cannot tell you how frustrating it is to know that, like, he would be so much more comfortable if people would just give him a little whispered rundown. And more useful, too. Yeah, because then he would know what he's supposed to do and know what's expected of him. 
Mm. It's like trying to apply for a job where you don't actually know what the job is. It's like that episode of um, Black Books where Fran gets the job and no one tells her what she does. <laughs> she does that amazing presentation. Are we or are we not a team? <laughs> amazing. Maybe that's what Richard feels like as well. He's just walking around being like, guys. Nobody tells Richard anything. It makes me so crazy. Oh my gosh. I actually wrote that down as one of the things. Like, I wish people would just tell Richard things. What if he needs to know something and there's no chance to explain later? Like, Mm. why not just sit him down and give him the bullet point list? Like, don't do this. Don't go here. Don't talk to this person. These people are okay. If you have to, if you're caught, say you're in this barony and fiefdom. Like, just tell him something. Mm, give him some sort of context, right? Yeah, and maybe this is my neurodivergent parenting thing where, like, social scripts are a thing that I have worked on and, like, lived and breathed for years. And I now prepare them for myself when I'm about to meet people I don't know. I've learned as an adult how to have conversations like this. Um, and social scripts are so useful. So why are they not giving Richard a social script? Come on, guys. This Can is you like... give me a social script? This sounds amazing. <laughs> Oh, it is. It's really good. It's really nice to know that you can just follow, like, a set of bullet points. And if all else fails, just paraphrase what the person has said to you in a slightly different way and act interested in the answer. Encourage them to keep talking, and everyone will think you're the most polite and wonderful conversationalist. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly what Richard needs. He just needs some, like, some three things that he can just say and then, like, diffuse a situation. Yes, exactly. He doesn't look big or terrifying enough, and being roguishly handsome isn't really doing it for anyone down in London below. So, mm, what else did I have? I like I, I kept thinking for. I I think one of the best examples of compassion, like genuine compassion, aside from Richard and Miss Whiskers, was when the Earl was really sad to hear about Dor's family mm. passing. He was really moved, mm. and he had nothing but good things to say about her dad. I think they might not have seen eye to eye on everything, but he had a lot of respect for him. And yeah. he's like recognizing and offering that condolence in like the way that Dor can accept it. Yeah, I've, I had that as a moment of compassion too. And even later, when you know when he's forgotten that Lord Portigo is dead, he's mm. he says such nice things about him. So there's genuine affection there, and I think he is genuinely moved by the loss. Um, in that scene where he's forgotten, and he proposition store I, I got really annoyed that Richard was more frustrated that the Earl wasn't remembering Dor than the fact that he was being a super gross old lech to Dor like yeah he was gross and like Hunter immediately like steps forward because she ain't got time for this and Dor is yeah. like no no she holds her back but Richard doesn't even seem to he sort of just accepts it like of course that's happening like yeah that's normal yeah. you know he doesn't clock it as being like that's gross you're not gonna say anything about the fact that this 70 year old guy just told a 15 year old looking girl to like stay home and keep him warm at night like ew super and ew. touched her hair no Ooh, and leered at her that's a word i could never hear again and i would be fine with leered is a gross word um yeah that was a bit sad on richard's part like where's your compassion now richard but i suppose that's just classic yeah i think he just doesn't see it and that's a really good way of like i mean taking the text is sacred we can be annoyed at richard for not seeing this like he observes it he's witnessed it he's recording mm. it like, from his perspective, distantly, right? But, like, he doesn't parse it the way that we do. Yeah, he gets annoyed at the wrong thing. Getting frustrated at someone for having memory issues is not very compassionate either. (laughs) No, but, like, you could definitely say it would have been, I think it would have been a better illustration of character to be frustrated on Dora's behalf that she's having to deal with this gross old lech. Mm. It seems obvious that he forgets things. Like, the hunters explained this, right? But 
Mm. Um, I thought the Earl was also compassionate in a way for letting the Marquis go. Because he obviously has got beef with him. And like Dor takes quite a chance being like, if you harm him, you must also harm. I would take it as a slight upon me and my house. I'm like, wow, you're really like cashing in that social capital and backing it. The Earl actually cares that much about your relationship. All for this man who's a bit of a, you know, not a nice guy. Very dodgy, yeah. And then, yeah, the Earl lets him go. I thought that was nice. And they even stopped and let him off. And mm. wherever he wasn't, wasn't too far from where they'd started, obviously. Because he was able to save Lear after however long. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was good that the Earl let him go. But I also think that the Marquis knew he was going to. I don't think that that was a chance encounter. What do you think? Do you think that he took an opportunity he saw? Or do you think he kind of counted on that? I don't really know why the Marquis got on the train. He got nothing out of the exchange, right? Unless it's a show of power. Like, is that mm. what it is? It was just the fact that, oh... I know you don't want me, but I'm coming anyway, because that's just the kind of person I am. Because he says to Dor, oh, you might not be entirely happy to see me. And then when they're on the train, Dor's like, oh, not entirely happy? And he's like, well, he's not. And it's like, it's a bit yeah. more than that, isn't it? And it was classic Marquis just calling in a favour that's worth way more than he gave someone in the first place. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. I just, I don't really know why he bothered. I wonder if he has an agenda that he needs Dor to trust him in some way that he he has to appear to be by her side as much as possible but then like he just seemed too eager to get off that train Mm. he had other things to do or maybe it was just an excuse for him to leave the party right like he needed an excuse to not be by her side so he knew that the earl would kick him off so yeah that's what i was wondering that's i thought maybe he that was a calculated uh risk i hadn't even thought of that but yeah how else would he get a go about his other little agendas without shaking the party he can't just say hey i'll see you guys later right but yeah, and I also wondered, like, because he knew, Marky knew that the hunter had to stay in London below, but did they have that conversation, quote-unquote, on screen? No, definitely not. There was that moment when they're, when they're auditioning bodyguards when Dora's talking to Richard that Hunter and the Marquis are having a conversation off to the side, oh, like, when be. they're discussing, like, the terms of her engagement, I guess, mm. or maybe then? Yeah, it felt very strange that... He was able to say, as long as you stay in London below, Hunter will protect you. And Richard clocks that later when Hunter mm. won't go up the steps from the British, British Museum station with them. And is like, oh, yeah, that's right. The Marquis knew. That's what gives him the opportunity to have that heart to heart with with Dor about maybe the Marquis a little bit dodgy. <laughs> It is weird. Like, I mean, it is weird to employ a bodyguard who, you know, is restrained in some way. And for, for Hunter, like, to take a job when she knows, like, you know she knows she has limitations that's quite a big chance on her part as well i mean presumably she won't get paid if something happens to door right well i mean yeah who would yeah <laughs> i guess if your client dies how do you collect right um so what do you think about croup and vandemar being in the storeroom well they obviously knew that it was not a chance encounter if you will i agree Krupp and Venema are interesting because they're, fo- they're taking a chance on following their employer's directions, even though it goes against their very nature. Like, you know, mm. they, they're so abhorrent at the fact that they can't hurt these people, even though they yeah, really want to. They're really it. mad about it. And like, I thought it was so, it was like, it's horrible, but it's also quite funny when, you know, they're seeing them and then Richard's like, if you want to hurt her, he said, you'll have to kill me first. And Mr. Vandermar seemed genuinely pleased by this. All right, he said. Thanks. <laughs> it was like Richard was accidentally being compassionate to him. And he's like, oh, that's so nice of you, Richard. Thank you. I will. I will murder you. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. Heart's desire. I'm just like, what? <laughs> these two guys are 
messed up. <laughs> it was a pretty funny moment. <laughs> oh, at least Mr. Vandermeer is like, there's no pretense to him. I feel like Mr. Croup is a bit, he's playing games. Mr. Like, Vandermeer is just straight up, whereas Croup is a bit like, oh, I need to be playing games and doing things and trying to be yeah. clever. Whereas Vandermeer is just like, I'm just going to eat this pigeon. It's fine. The descriptions of him are so interesting, right? He's gently tearing pieces of this discarded sandwich and luring the pigeons to him, and then he just bites its head off. Like, yeah. The, the juxtapositions are so fascinating. I think Neil Gaiman's done a really great job of this particular character. Like, I don't like Croup and Vandermeer. I dislike mm. Croup more. Mm. because of I think exactly what you're saying Vandemar is 100% you see it you get it like yeah, it's, he's, yeah he wears his nature on his sleeve almost but yeah Krupp is just he enjoys being horrible but in a different way in a slimy way yeah and it's it strikes me as interesting that these two would just keep following orders from people when they are clearly so much stronger than almost anyone else like why do they do what yeah. they do yeah what's in it for them suspicious very suspicious um, what did you think about the way that they both treated Hunter when she said she had to stay in London below? <clears throat> yeah, not very compassionate, I don't think. Because mm. Dawes like, what is it? Some sort of curse? And Hunter says yes. And like, if someone told me they were cursed, I would be like, oh my god, that's terrible. Do do tell me more, or you know, yeah. is there anything I can do? But Dawes just presses on, which is surprising. And Hunter doesn't try to stop it, which I think is also interesting. It's like, well, you're my charge and therefore you cannot go where I can't follow, but she just lets her go. Yeah, that was a weird thing to me as well. I, I like that Richard was like, you can't just run off. Like, people are trying to kill you. And I think it was really kind of a good thing that he said that because then as soon as they got to the top, they were recruiting Vandemar. So it was a bit of a, like, I hate to say I told you so, but like... See? See. Yes, exactly. I, I feel like that was a good thing on Richard's part to go with. And to be brave, because he, he took his cue from her and said, you know, if she could be brave, I could be brave too. Mm. It's like, oh, look at you. You're still following someone else around, but at least you're getting somewhere better. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about Hunter as well and what it must have cost her to not be able to go up those steps. Because she is someone with this fearsome reputation as an amazing warrior and all these things. And she's got her pride, you know, like, and there's something quite vulnerable in having to be like, oh, I can't go to London above like it's a big constraint yeah I just felt like she was obviously so miserable that they should have been a little bit kinder hmm come up with a different plan maybe instead of just leaving her at the bottom of the stairs well Richard tried to he's like maybe we can where'd she go yeah (laughs) yeah Dora was just off I think Dora was just going to achieve the things she needed to achieve and I definitely understand that I've had you know like experiences like that where I'm like well I don't care I just have to get this done like I will stay up till 5am to do it or like the cost seems to be minimal compared to getting the resolution yeah and it's interesting because what motivates her you know like the ill says to her is it vengeance and she's like oh yeah my dad did mention vengeance but I just want to know let me just find it oh yeah Page 157. Vengeance? Dor thought for a moment. Yes, that was what my father said. But I just want to understand what happened and to protect myself. My family had no enemies. So she's not motivated by, like, getting revenge or anything. She just wants to understand. She just wants to know why. They must have had enemies. I'm I'm wondering if it's because Portico was kind of advocating for a more inclusive Mm. London below. Less of a divided society. There were a lot of people who would not benefit from that who were in power. It's almost like a commentary on the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> Dismantle it. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about mm. 
is on page 152 when De Carabas introduces himself and they name all these things that he is. Like De Carabas the traitor, De Carabas the body snatcher. Yeah, what? What? <laughs> yes, that's what I wrote down. Okay, what? So can <laughs> what? we just like... Is that like kidnapper or like corpse finder? What I Im- immediately thought was like he would just steal someone's body and then live in that body. I'm like, that kind of fits his personality. Oh, and that lines up with my idea that like the the roles are not necessarily tied to the physical beings. Mm, yeah, because they sort mm. of just like yeah, and like maybe that's just what he does. Like he just uses a body and then like because he's a user, right? That's what he does. He uses people. So yeah. why wouldn't he also just use someone's body and then be like, well, it's served its purpose. Off we pop into the next one. Yeah, maybe like a an invader rather than a symbiotic type thing. I've been watching Star Trek and the first thing I thought of was like Trill, how they stack up all of their consciousnesses inside this oh, little worm yeah. symbiote and yeah. It's so good. Discovery is so good. It's I need so to good. Watch it. Yeah, you're gonna wanna marry everybody on that show because they're all amazing. Even the villains are like super horrible and amazing. They're so good. That's the best kind of villain. No, I'll definitely watch it. I'm just watching Brooklyn Nine Nine now that the new season's out. I love Brooklyn Nine Nine. That's one of my comfort food watches. I was really stressed because I used to watch it with my ex and I was really stressed that I wouldn't be able to enjoy it anymore. But no, it's fine. It's still good without exes. Yeah. I think enough time has passed that I now can revisit these things that I was worried about. You've had your period of mourning. Yeah. And now it's like, oh yeah, that was a thing. Um. Okay. Was there anything else that you thought we should talk about? Um. I, I think sometimes that this book gets a little thesaurus heavy. Mm, yeah, good point. I kind of don't like when I can't get from context what a word means. Because mm. the tone doesn't match or it's used to like illustrate a point that's the opposite of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So I ended up having to look up lugubrious, mm. which just means mournful, but it doesn't sound like it means mournful. Um, so I am, as the youths would say, shook. Because I had to look up a word for the first time in like a decade. That is a weird word. I'm not certain what that means. I thought it meant kind of like lazily like like not caringly but it actually means like sadly or funereally like like mournfully yeah i sort of thought like lazily as well because to me something about the word suggests oozy i don't know like yeah like oily yeah like you know yes yeah like job of the hut would say yeah okay good so i'm not the only one who looked at that word and went right okay that obviously means like yeah I didn't bother to look it up though so 10 points to (laughs) to you I was just like I listened to the audiobook as well and I was like what voice is he trying to do because when they when the author themselves do it you can usually get a sense but I was just like which Neil Gaiman voice is this like so I had to look it up yeah mournful 10 points to Hufflepuff on that I think that's some (laughs) excellent research thank you Um, and the other thing I really loved and wanted to point out was how like really lovely the 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 court actually seemed Mm. like i love the idea that you walk in and there are tapestries hanging up and embroidered cushions and and the wolfhound the wolfhound yes i love the look of wolfhound so it made Mm. me happy to think of this little one padding around the feet of the earl not little one they're huge they're massive they're like horse dogs but yeah yeah that that was cool and i love that it was also not just the one carriage like yes you entered into the carriage but then there were like rooms off of it that was really cool yeah like dora's family a bit having this access mm. to like magic that they have these rooms in other places so i wonder if there's something similar to how the the earl has that stone room inside of a train carriage yeah interesting and Dor- 
And Richard, yet again, he's just like, you think you'd get used to the unusual things, but he's like, oh, there's no library. It's the same like when they pull up to the British Museum station. He's mm. like, oh, there's no British Museum station. I'm like, can you just stop this? Can you stop arguing with things that your eyes tell you are true? Yeah. Yeah. I think at this point I would be going like, oh, there's a British Museum station. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I would be arguing every point. He does seem to enjoy being right about things, but he just really isn't that often. Mm. So I don't know where he gets that feeling from. <laughs> You'd think Jessica would have squashed that out of him after 18 months. Yeah. Do you feel like he was maybe so clueless that he just didn't understand that it, it was happening? Yeah, totally. Or maybe he just wasn't that invested in... I think that's it. He's not present in life. Like, he just drifts. He's just drifting along, letting things mm. buffet him down the stream this way or that way. What an odd way to live. I quite like being in charge of things and choosing to do stuff and... Yeah, I can't imagine not wanting to have agency in my own life or not wanting to make decisions or Mm. choosing things for myself you know people must be like that i guess (laughs) i mean i hear that that's a thing that's true but it seems very it feels very hard for me to let go of having an idea of what i want things to look like in order to allow myself to let go yeah i like my ex was like this and that he never made a decision he was just happy to always go along with anything and everything. And at first you're like, oh, that's really nice. But then sometimes you're like, you need to actually want something in life. Like you need yeah. to, you need to have momentum because there's no momentum. Yeah. There's nothing that pushes you forward. And Yeah. You need to have your own ambition and you need to be able to like, even if it's very little, you still need to have something that you want. Yeah. And then what I was trying to do was like, I want a thing. So I tried to give him my things to want in order to move move us forward but that didn't work either because he didn't want the things that I wanted he didn't want anything but like I don't understand how you get out of bed in the morning to be honest like like Richard what what motivates him why does he go to work why does he do anything like what animates yeah. you is the fear of not having enough to I don't know like because his life disappears right and all he does is go right I'll just go get it back and he's sad about losing his life so he obviously likes his life maybe it's just because it's comfortable or familiar yeah, maybe that's it. I mean, we know in the end, the only part of the whole rest of the book that I remember is that he goes back into London Below with Dora at the end, right? Yeah. He doesn't love it enough to actually try and recover it. No. In the end. He decides for himself at the end to go back with Dora. But I guess maybe that's his character development is that he realizes that he does want something. He changes. He has he has wants and ambitions by then. Whereas now yeah. he's just a passenger. Like, do-do-do-do-do. Yeah. Like that's, the ride. that's his hero's journey. Something to think about. We should look for Richard being a little more assertive. Yeah, maybe let's it'll see. happen. We'll see where it happens, and we can make and notes. not just arguing with events, but like actually having some agency, taking control. What about you? Did you have anything else that you thought was interesting or wanted to point out? I've already t- spoken about my things. The body snatcher. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to look that up and see if that's a folklore thing. I also just kind of liked how Richard described the Earl's forgetfulness as losing the battle with temporal drift. I just love that as a phrase, but I have nothing else to say about it. (laughs) Yeah, there are some really beautiful phrases in there. I like the bit where Old Bailey was admiring the sunset. The last smudge of orange sun faded into a nocturnal purple. It's a bit pretty. Yeah. Literally purple prose. (laughs) Um, and I liked watching Dor really come into her own. I mean, she's been through this really traumatic experience, but she's still able to carry on the duties of her, uh, I guess, position in society. Mm. Like, she rises to it and is very impressive and knows exactly what to say and exactly how far to let things go 
and when to let go of things as well, which is very, she's quite savvy for someone so hurt and also seeming so young. Yeah, yeah, she does a good job. And it seems like she really kind of remembers that when she gets into the ill's court, right? Like she pulls herself up mm. and she lifts her chin and does all these things. And then I wonder if that's not what spurs her on to like press on at the British Museum because she's not that scared, like high adrenaline air, like sort of environment that she was in before. She's like, oh yeah, yeah. that's right. I am a, I'm a highborn lady. Yeah, she's remembered something about what makes her proud and happy. Um, oh, there's something else about... I, I love how luminous she gets when she's explaining about her talent. Like, that, mm. it's so personal, and she takes such great joy in it. I really love that moment where even Richard could see that it just, like, completely elevated her. Yeah. And I think you would like it because there was a job well done there. There was a job well done. <laughs> I always find the jobs well done for you now. Thank you. <laughs> brings me great joy this was a kind of a short two chapters wasn't it yeah the kind of like transitions we were just in the little in-between spaces the forgotten railway stations and abandoned tunnels Hmm. but a lot of setting up for the next couple of chapters i think yes indeed we'll see some big moves um chapters nine and ten which we're reading next Uh, yeah i don't like their chances of finding an angel in the british museum i just have a feeling it's gonna be harder than it initially seems can't be easy nothing can ever be easy oh did you have a character you want to spotlight yes the hunter um i felt so bad for her this week that no one was nice to her even though she's been protecting door and like putting up with lots of things and like is obviously super terrifying but also she's the only one who ever answers Richard's questions and like Mm. as a person who always has questions I always want to know the people who will stop and pay attention and like say oh yeah this is how it works and like pitch it at the right level for you they are worth their weight in gold thank you all of the people out there who are actually answering the questions I love you can you just keep doing that forever that's so Thank nice. Thank you from the bottom of my curious weirdo heart. <laughs> so the hunter gets a spotlight for me. What about you? I was actually also going to spotlight Hunter. Um, no, I think for like knowing and acknowledging her limits. Like she, I think it costs her something to be able to say, I cannot go to London above. Like acknowledging your weaknesses is a hard thing and it makes you vulnerable. And yeah, she's kind of forced into it, but she also just kind of stands her ground on it. She's like, this is this is my limit, this is my boundary, and she sets it. And, you know, she was honest about it with the Marquis. It's not her fault that he, yet again, did not convey that properly. So, Mm. yeah, I think, you know, we should all know our limits and it'll make all our lives easier if we can just set clear boundaries. So props to people who can do that. She's the MVP this week, the hunter. She's, yeah. And her burnt caramel skin. I actually, I will show you what I did with that. You're going to laugh at me. This is the only time I've ever done this in a book. So mad. (laughs) What did you write? (laughs) I crossed it out. Amazing. I just crossed it out. A statue cast of bronze. That's enough. We don't have to add. And burnt caramel. That would have been enough. That would have been absolutely enough. It's redundant. But did did you know her skin's burnt caramel though? Like, did you know? Did you? Did you? Did you? I didn't. I didn't pick that up the oh, first no, eight times. No, it, no, it was... Definitely, it's a mystery to me. What color was her skin? I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I can't remember. Maybe if we read the book, we'll find it. <laughs> Maybe it'll come up again. <laughs> yeah, if we're lucky, we'll we'll get some reminders. <laughs> Dora is often described as pale, so it's not just about the fact that she's not white. Like Dora is often described as being strikingly pale. But really, it's only the women who get these descriptions. Yeah, it isn't is it? weird how they're always like, yeah, like she's described as pale and like impish and like. 
whatever the other word, elfin. elfin. And I'm like, okay, we get it. Stop doing this. Like, why do you do this every description? I don't understand. Like, mm. why would Richard be observing her like this? Because he's the, you know, our narrator, our, our in into yeah. this world, right? So what does it matter that she's got big opal eyes and she's elfin and really pale with messy hair? I, it's quite, it's quite off-putting. <laughs> Yeah, it's distracting from the narrative a lot of the time, isn't it? I am trying to remember what actually what we were talking about at the very end of the last season. And you said, like, we just have to be able to let the book stand. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm editing this today because all of the frustrations I'm having. And like, I do have to remember that this is a text and we're trying to read it as safe. Yeah, so it exists as a whole thing and we just need to accept it as it is and not question it. And we just have to be okay with it in the context that it's written in and we have to just understand that yes she has skin like burnt caramel as much as I hate to say it and yes and it's not about like we're trying to find the deeper meaning right so that's why we're looking for the the themes and that's we're going beyond the text and it's good I think like you can't ever find like if you're reading a book and you're finding it perfect oh yeah no I don't even read my own things and find them perfect. And I wrote them exactly how I wanted them to be written. So there has to be something that you could respond to and react to. And for us being annoyed by this, I think it's a good sign. It means that we care about this happening and Mm. we don't want to see it because it bothers us. And that's like responsible human 101, right? Mm. Yeah. So like we can be annoyed that it's in the text, but it is in the text and we do have to like address it. So we're still learning as well, you know? So next week, we'll be reading chapters 9 to 10 through the theme of fate, which, you know, dovetails quite nicely with chance in a way. Kind of like the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, I think it'll be really good to have a deeper look and look at whether things are fated. Mm. And I'm especially keen to see how more things play out with the British Museum. I want to know what they find. Ah, I remember what they find. So I'm very excited for you to find out what they find. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, maybe I'll just go read it like right now so I can know because I am dying to find out. I was was so good. I shut the book and I'm like, oh, come on. They're just right there. Let them in. I want to see. Keep going. Um, Yeah, the chapters all do seem to end kind of on little cliffhangers, don't they? Like every time it's Mm. like, oh. They, we end just before they go into the court and oh, we end just before they go into the library. I'm like, oh, I see what you're mm. doing here. I wonder if they also, because I did notice that they also end with Richard just arguing about something. Yeah, he does love an argue. <laughs> he just has a little little useless stand against something, so that should be an interesting thing. <laughs> Maybe we should track the little useless arguments he has. There is no British Museum station. There is no Angel Islington. I did think it was funny how he was like described as looking at the sign and then looking away and then looking back like he was trying to catch <laughs> the sign out, like pretending to be something else. Silly man. He'll get there. He'll get there eventually, right? Eventually. Well, thank you for potting with me. This was really fun. No, thank you, as always, for your delightful insights. I love our chats. Me too. It's the highlight of my week. Same. I will see you next week. Yeah. Have a good evening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at marginaliapod.com.